This is Recruiting Daily's Recruiting Live podcast, where we look at the strategies behind the world's best talent acquisition teams. We talk recruiting, sourcing, and talent acquisition. Each week, we take one overcomplicated topic and break it down so that your three-year-old can understand it. Make sense? Are you ready to take your game to the next level? You're at the right spot. You're now entering the mind of a hustler. Here's your host, William Tincup. This is William Tincup, and you're listening to the Recruiting Daily Podcast. Today, we have Angela on from Sterling, and we're doing the mid-year compliance check-in. It's always good to talk about compliance. Compliance actually drives HR and recruiting. And uh, a lot of people make fun of it on some level. But truth is, without compliance, we would be in a lot of trouble. I love these types of shows because, especially at the beginning of the year or mid-year, because things change so fast in compliance, especially as it relates to hiring and screening. Angela? Do us a favor and introduce yourself and start. Sure. Thank you. So I'm Angela Preston, and I am Associate General Counsel for Corporate Ethics and Compliance at Sterling. Sterling is the global leader in background screening. We are a global company. And just a little bit about our, our goals and our values and how we serve the world is really providing the best-in-class background screening services where we value the people part of the business. We approach things people first. We're always minding what our clients need and how that affects their constituents, including, of course, the candidates. And we have a history in the market with our expertise and technology and creating really a seamless experience. That's a little bit about Sterling. I've been with Sterling for seven years. I joined the company by way of acquisition. And my history in the legal world has really been a career focused on the compliance and legal aspects of background checks. Prior to joining Sterling, I worked for a number of other screening companies and also spent a lot of time sort of leading some policy initiatives in the screening world through our various trade associations, the Professional Background Screeners Association. Um, I was chair of that organization and served on the board of that organization for about 10 years. I also served with the uh, Consumer Data Industry Association, CDIA, as head of the background screening arm of that organization. So I've really focused my career on all of the sort of complicated issues around screening compliance. And it is a regulated type of service. It's regulated at the federal, state, and local level. So there's a lot of complexity to it. And and I work with Sterling primarily and guiding Sterling and creating the right services to serve our clients in this world. But I also work directly with a lot of clients in sharing best practices and how to really create a better experience for their candidates, which ultimately drives success all around. I could I could talk to you for hours because I have so many questions. But <laughs> so let's do the what is what should people be thinking? Practitioners, HR, and recruiters. What should they be thinking about mid year 
things that might have come online or were about to come online, et cetera, it's that they're not paying attention to. What are those things? Yeah. So these things are cyclical a bit because we work in, in legislative cycles at the state level and even at the local level. So what you see often at, at the end of a legislative session, there's a flurry of legislation and regulations that get enacted or get passed for future future implementation. And I think that sometimes in the middle of the summer and this time of year, you are things slow down a little bit in the business world. But a lot of the things that may be passed at the end of the year are cranking up or starting to roll out, depending on whether it was a six-month implementation or a full year enactment. A few of the things that that have been hot with background screening as it impacts HR and and the hiring uh, community are really around criminal records. And there, over the past couple of years, we've seen a lot of trends around fair chance laws. Mm-hmm. Those that sort of body of law came about as an effort to really ensure that we were addressing as a society and as a a matter of policy, addressing the potential for discrimination against groups that might be more likely to have a criminal history. And the new wave that we're seeing takes fair chance a step further. And it's, it's a new initiative that kind of goes under the banner of clean slate laws. Um, are you familiar with that term? I am, but to the audience, let's just give them a high-level overview of what it means. Yeah, so when we're talking about clean slate, we're talking about um, policies that not only address how you can screen a candidate, but actually the records that are available for screening. In other words, clean slate laws give the candidate or the the individual an opportunity to basically get their record cleared before they are even subject to a background check. That can happen in a number of ways. One might be that the law says we're going to automatically remove from the court record this these types of records and, and they may define certain categories of records that will actually get automatically erased. Is that similar or different from expunged? It's similar to expunged, but usually with an expungement, the individual has to petition the court to get their record expunged. And the big difference with clean slate is that the law is saying, look, court clerks, administrators, keepers of the record, you actually have to cleanse the record, purge the record of these things. And these are obviously uncertain types of criminal activity and maybe a time, a distance between when the uh, criminal offense happened or how does, how do they make that decision? I'm sure sure it's, I'm sure it's pretty easy to figure out, but how, how do they know what to clear and what not to clear? It's not so easy, actually. <laughs> it's kind of all over the place. William, we, you're wrong. <laughs> no, this is the challenge for employers, I think, as we're thinking about these laws. And okay, so we know that these laws are going into effect, but how do they impact your policies and your program for screening? And what can you expect? The laws are all over the place. Some laws, some because they can be affected 
you know, it could be different state by state and they are different state by state. Michigan, for example, expands the eligibility to file a petition for certain types of things and then auto expunges other types of things. It could be misdemeanors only. It could be, right. uh, it might include your arrest record uh, or in other areas, it may not include an arrest record. It may be automated or there may be some level of petitioning required, even, even if it's a, a rubber stamp the individual may have to file something to get it to kick off or trigger it. And it may be based on an amount of time, but that amount of time might be four years. It might be seven years. It might be 10 years, depending on the the level of the offense. You've seen, obviously there's federal regs and sometimes the states, not sometimes the states deviate from that and, and have either special things that they have. Have you seen anything at the municipal level? With Clean Slate, it's typically happening at the state level. Got it. But it doesn't have to. Right, right, (laughs) Um, right, right. It doesn't have to. But the the reality is the court systems in the United States are arranged like they're they're created by on a county level. And then sometimes Mm -hmm. those counties filter up to the state level. So in some of these states, the states on the forefront of this usually have some sort of unified state court system. Um, So what we're typically seeing here are states and they're basically saying this applies to our unified court system. But even if there is a uniform law that addresses the state, there could be Different counties might be using different software. Just break it down to a level that everybody can understand. Different counties might be using different software. So how they put these things into effect, it can be very challenging and complex for the states to implement where they are expected to cleanse these records. So they can take, these laws take time to fully implement. The Michigan law was passed in 2020, and we only just this year really saw it roll out and the impact of it really. How do you, dumb question alert, how do you make sure that your (laughs) clients in Michigan know, or or maybe not even in Michigan, those that are hiring candidates that are in Michigan? Because where does the law apply? And again, dumb question alert, is it the where you're hiring from? or where the candidate is located? No, that's a great question. The The law applies in the, in the case of these clean slate laws, it applies in the state where the record resides. Got it. You could have a candidate who is based in Texas, but their record was in Michigan. And if they had a history if they previously lived in Michigan or whatever, that Michigan record is going to be impacted by the Michigan law. Got it. So it doesn't really follow the person. It it really is specific to where the record is housed with these particular laws. But if you're an employer and you're hiring people all over the country, I think you asked, how do we let clients know and right. how do we how does it affect the employer community? We let our clients know that these things are coming along and that this is going into effect so that they understand that they will run a background check and these records will no longer be available because they, if they're not available at the court, they're not available to Sterling (laughs) or any other background screening company. So what we do is 
we let our clients know through our typical channels. We do blog posts, we do email notifications. Right. We, we push this information out as do many other news and media outlets and other companies. But we let our clients know that this information will no longer be available, generally speaking. And so you need to anticipate, like with your screening program, that if you typically look at a person's history and want to see felonies and misdemeanors, in some places, some of these misdemeanors are going to disappear. Some of these low-level felonies are going to disappear. I think that an employer may not have to change anything in their program because this is going to happen on the back end, but they need to know that they're not getting the information that they used to get. Right. And they may want to think about their program a little bit differently. And the mm. other thing to mention, just, yeah, to further, just to further complicate things, is that <laughs> there are a number of exemptions, as there always is with any sort of legislation like this. If you are in a certain category, if you're hiring for law enforcement, for example, you may still have access to those records. So you have to know, too, if you're in a special category, you may be exempt. So we always define special category for us just real quick. Yeah, like a, a special category would be hiring a peace officer. Got it, got it. Or someone that requires a federal security clearance. Right, clearance, yeah. They would have access to this information and and that that is really an education piece where we always tell folks we're flagging these issues for you. We want to help you navigate all of this stuff, but Ultimately, you need to know your own business and you need to know what's what. And we like to always tell folks, get with your counsel, understand how this might impact your specific use case or the nuance of your particular business case. Yeah, I, I can see a, a lot of training going into this in terms of, because there's so many people involved, sourcers, recruiters, hiring managers, HR, etc., making sure that they understand that, you know, screening is fluid. It's not, you know, carved in stone or marble or whatever, that it changes. And and I can see, especially with hiring managers, HR, they're pretty steeped in compliance. So I think they get it. Recruiters, yes. But hiring managers, they, man, I, they don't really, they're not, that's just not their world. They have jobs. They're doing other things. I wonder how we push the message to them in terms of what can be asked, what can't be asked, what's going to be on the screen, what won't be on the screen, and why. Like all of those things so that they understand and don't make any mistakes. Because I can see if someone doesn't know, if they haven't been trained properly, them asking questions. Even though they're not supposed to, it happens every day, I could see them making mistakes like that. Yeah, it's... It's complex. There's no question. And you have a number of different regulators and different points of information that you have to be aware of and understand because a lot of the fair chance laws are really anti-discrimination laws that require you to take certain things into account. Like you're not, you can't consider the criminal history till you've already 
made a conditional offer or you've already searched and looked at other things like employment verification and done your reference checks and so on. But then these laws really have to do with the data that's available, like the information that's on the record. But they both have the same goal, which is to open up opportunities for those folks who have a criminal history and are are trying to re-enter the workforce and trying to get a fair shot at a job. So, right. Um, is there yeah. any other deadlines or things that are coming up like in the next six months, maybe by the end of the year that they should at least know that this is around the corner? There, there are, there are other things that are definitely on a rolling and effective date type of cycle. I think that one of the things that we just saw go into effect uh, in the city of New York was the law or the ordinance around um, automated decisioning tools, mm -hmm. um, automated employment decisioning tools, and the use of uh, AI in the construction of tools that may have an impact on uh, employment decisions. Right. So, you know, that just went into effect. Um, we've got, you know, a number of things that are typically the, a lot of the effective dates are around the first of the year. January 1, or it's more common to have that, like an effective date be in January. So that's why we typically do like an end of the year update to say, all right, are you ready for January 1 in 2024? And a lot of the marijuana laws that we saw go, um, that were passed in the past, in this past year, go into effect in January. So I would say the things that we're looking at, the other sort of big trending items would be laws around the use of AI in employment decisioning and some of the marijuana laws around when you can consider marijuana and whether or not there's some of the states also opened up recreational use as well as medicinal use of right marijuana. So yeah, that's another big trending item that is noteworthy. Well, and some of the states have opened up some of the psychedelics, mushrooms in particular. If people were having, diff if employers were having difficulty with navigating THC and marijuana, <laughs> yeah. adding, adding to that another layer of, of drugs, again, if it's legal in that state, I've always, I know your customers have these questions, but again, where does the law apply, if especially with remote work? If I live in Denver, and I, and uh, I and there's an edible shop right next to me, uh, but the company has a either on the front end with pre-hire, but all or even in the employment side that you can't have THC in your system or the drug test, etc. Where does the law? Where does the law apply? Yeah, the thing to remember about the drug laws, you have to first consider the fact that whether or not it is a federally controlled substance. So oh, the fact that marijuana is still a, a federally controlled substance yep. and is illegal at the federal level, you do have this additional layer of consideration of at the state or local level, because some states may allow medical use, some right. may allow adult use or 
quote unquote, recreational use, and some may allow both. And so first of all, you have to keep in mind that regardless of the state allowing certain uses, you can still regulate your workplace right. under right. federal law. Right. And you right. can also regulate impairment just because someone can use medically or for adult use, depending on the job and the role. If someone is impaired on the job, you are allowed to have a safe workplace and, yeah. and create your safe workplace conditions. So that is something just that employers need to be grounded in and not it's, get it's the, the easy cut of that. The easy and you deal with this every day, Angela. It's the forklift driver, real easy. Someone that's in yeah. mining, totally easy. They shouldn't it's the demand generation marketer. Yeah. You're like, where do you draw the line? as to workplace safety. Again, especially with remote or hybrid work or something like that. Uh, I find that fascinating, but I know that every employer, they're dealing with risk management, mitigation. Uh, and so they've got to look at all, they've got to weigh all these things. Um, sure. Yeah. And the safety sensitive stuff is is a no break. That's the easy that's, case. Right. And it, it's a little bit further complicated with a substance like marijuana where we're getting better at this but we don't we haven't quite hit the the point where it's readily available is how to test for impairment cool. because you the employers in a horrible spot because like California passed the the recent law in September of last year it was AB 2188 discrimination in employment and the use of cannabis where the California law requires the employer to prove that a person is not impaired. <laughs> and how do you really, do really how hard. do you do that yeah it's really hard to enforce or enforce your policy if you're an employer um, and again the testing companies have stepped up for sure. Yes. Yeah. They are answering this challenge and coming up with some really innovative new solutions that we're excited to to look at. But until things are tested and vetted and mainstream, right. it's still yeah, well, I, getting I, there. I saw this at Sherm. A lot of the folks that came out of COVID, really on the pharma side, that developed a lot of these at-home kits, they started to kind of branch into HR and drug testing in particular. And so it's fascinating. Again, still don't know the, I don't, I still know how employers are going to implement that, especially in a remote environment, in an office environment or a, a warehouse environment. I think that's a little bit easier. If Timmy's on a forklift, seems to be impaired, Timmy takes a test. Okay. I, I can get my hands around that. It's when Timmy's in working from Paris. <laughs> Like, yeah. by the time the test gets to Timmy's, Timmy's not impaired anymore. So what do we do there? But I, I do have one last question is, and because you deal with, you you help consult with customers, which I absolutely love. What's the number one question that, or what keeps them up at night? You just hear it <laughs> over and over, maybe formed in different phrases and all that stuff, but things that just, this is going to come up in this conversation. Yeah, honestly, I think that, there's a, I hate to go here, but I think that one of the big fears is really the litigation 
And yep. are we going to get dinged either by a regulator on a, a large scale enterprise level with some sort of a, an investigation? Yep. Or are we going to get hit with the class action because the laws that really regulate and are there to protect consumers are very technical and full of a lot of little landmines that are easy to trip over if you're not super buttoned up in your program. I think that the most common questions that we get and the things that are keeping clients up at night are things like the big, the big lawsuits or regulatory investigations that can, if not take you out, at least sidetrack your team for a very long time. Yeah. And And it it is, especially if it was preventable. If it was something yeah. that was, you know, was preventable. Last question, and I knew I said the last question was the last question, but <laughs> the just really quickly, do you find yourself also interacting with in-house counsel? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I love I working so. with in-house counsel. They're the best partners. Yeah, they get it. <laughs> they get it, and we all want the same thing, which is we want our clients to have a great program. We want their candidates to have a great experience. And we all want to understand what is the best practice and how do we get there? How do we do it the right way? And those are complex goals, but but I love working with, with the outside counsel, with the in-house counsel. And the truth is uh, everyone involved in this particular function is so much better educated today than maybe 10 years ago. Oh, yeah. Oh my gosh, yes. It's really (laughs) coming down. Yeah. So it's very satisfying to work with our clients on these issues. I could talk to you forever, but you've got other things to do today. Angela, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And thanks for everyone listening. Absolutely. And until next time. You've been listening to the Recruiting Live podcast by Recruiting Daily. Check out the latest industry podcasts, webinars, articles, and news at recruitingdaily.com. 